And here we go. Acts chapter 8. You got it. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Uh, The word in the original language there for preached the word wherever they went is the word where we get in English evangelize. It is euangelizo or evangelizo in the original language. So this is the word by which when we say evangelize, it's just an imitation of the mass of 10,000 that went about evangelizing wherever they went under the din of persecution. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So, I love this phrase, so there was great joy in that city. Now, as we go on in this section, I want us to appreciate what we're seeing here. There are 10,000 by the the most recent estimate of what we've been given in the book of Acts, of how large the church has grown in its early months of existence. But in this early months of existence, there is an explosion out of Jerusalem of 10,000 evangelists that all go everywhere and preach the word wherever they go. So I want you to imagine across the landscape, all this zeal powered by the Holy Spirit fortified by the absolute certainty of the resurrection of Jesus hitting every town now. And this story of Philip is just one small example of the 10,000 stories that could have been captured. It's a particularly poignant story because it's Samaria. And Samaria, as we'll see in a moment actually held a big barrier to bust in order to get there. So let's move on, though. Verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Now, because we are uh, so accustomed to what just seems to be charlatan parlor tricks of sorcery today, don't confuse that with what was going on here in Samaria. Uh, There is demonic activity behind what it is that Simon is doing. There is a deep darkness that has fallen over the region of Samaria. And this would have been heard by first century ears as a spiritual battle of epic proportions. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. I'm sorry. um, Verse 10. And all the people. I'm sorry. Where am I? Uh, Oh, he boasted that he was someone great. I'm in the end of verse 9. He boasted that he was someone great. 
That's not a good sign, by the way. And I don't think you ever want that being said about you. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. A first century worldview for a Jew at this time, and rightly so, would have been based on the dispersion of the nations at Babel. And way back in Genesis chapter 11, all the nations are are all dispersed under the discipline of God. And as they are all dispersed, it was also understood that God chose for his portion, where he would be their protector, their shield, their rock, their God, Abraham, and ultimately Israel. And so Israel recognized their special possession status, that they were the apple of God's eye. They were his, his dearest and, and most beloved and his only uh, people that were his own. All the other nations had come under some sort of spiritual thumb of the demonic entities that were, were active. And, and this is what is going on in Samaria because they are half-breeds of sorts, and we'll, we'll get into that more in a moment. But, but, but again, know that to enter into this territory is to enter out from the light and the protection and the shield of God into not just foreign people territory, not just an ethnic and a racial threshold to cross, but one where you leave the special protection of God Almighty. Verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news, guess what that phrase is there? Evangelize. So again, as I said, they all evangelize. 10,000 are evangelizing. And it's as though the camera goes from the wide angle lens to right into Samaria to be able to see the evangelizing of one particular man. And that being Philip, one of the, one of the seven servants that are uh, noted in Acts chapter 6. The first one was Stephen, and we saw what he did. That he went from busboy to really the, the catalyst for worldwide evangelism. Maybe through his death, through the persecution that he brought on, suddenly we see such a, a radical dispersion of the word of God. And one example of that would then be Philip, who is carried away on this tide of all that are, are fleeing from Jerusalem, except the apostles, but all the 10,000 believers fleeing from Jerusalem from the persecution there and bringing the news to all of the corners. And, and here is this one where Philip proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, it's a phrase that we hear we don't think much of because it's so familiar and it not that it rings hollow. But because it rings so familiar, we don't stop and really consider, but what is, what is the good news of the kingdom? What is it that he's sharing as he goes about? And maybe this, this helps me when I appreciate a phrase like that. This is the good news of the kingdom. The good news is this, and it involves bad news too, by the way. But the good news is this, that you are more repulsive, unseemly, shameful, dark, deluded, and frail than you could ever possibly discern. But there is a kingdom 
There is an unparalleled, unrivaled kingdom where you can be or you may already be more lovely, more beautiful, more honored, more enlightened, appreciated, and more powerful than you ever dared hope. And it's because that kingdom is benevolently ruled by an astounding king who not only knows you, but intimately knows you. And he loves you. And even more amazingly, he likes you. And what he did for you is more than astounding. That's the good news that is being brought to this dark place, to this city in Samaria that had grown so especially dark. And it's no wonder that as this was received and it was affirmed by even miracles that went about to confirm the message of this kingdom and this king and his power and his transformative abilities, that there was joy, joy in the city. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12, as we finish there. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. In a moment, we're going to wonder whether Simon is legit or not. And this is the verse that actually gives us a little bit of struggle with it because it clearly says, not that he just kind of through farce decided, okay, everybody else is is being born again of water and spirit. Uh, Let me kind of get in this line as well. No, it it says clearly that he believed and and then was baptized. And, And then not only that, but also practiced discipleship of Philip, he he akalatheoed. He followed him everywhere he went, astonished all along the way. Verse fourteen: When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now it doesn't say that about other places where the word of God is accepted. So why this? Why this one particular place? Well, again, Samaria is a really different situation, and. If you take a look at this map, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had given them the plan of how the Holy Spirit would empower them and distribute them to make a difference in all the world. And one of the things that he said is that you will receive power, and then after that, then you will then be my witnesses. You will be my testifiers. And where would you do that? And this is what he says in Acts 8. First in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus's clear plan of attack of how the gospel was going to spread. But why would he delineate it that way? Jerusalem, Judea, that's the the southern kingdom. That's the core of the Jews. That's the faithful remnant of God. But then he would then, again, make a special identification of Samaria before he just says, and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth, ta'ethne, is also the way of saying to the Gentiles. And by the way, by the looks of you all, that's you. <laughs> Samaria was an interesting hybrid 
because they were half-breeds. They were the ones that were taken into captivity early, quite early. Why? Because the northern ten ten tribes of Israel had become so apostate, so rejecting of God, that God disciplined them through the superpower of the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C., in 722 B.C. Took them out uh, of, of the land at that time, and left all of the northern area there. So do you see the Judea-Jerusalem circle there? That's all that remained when Assyria came and ripped everybody else out of the land. But it, it turns out that the people that uh, tried to come back into the land from Assyria were having trouble doing so. So the king of Assyria left some Jews, some of the northern tribe Jews, there in Samaria, in the northern tribes, to be able to appease the God of the land and also to, to also know the land. But what happened is, is as the Assyrians came down and the Jews that were left in Samaria were there, they began to intermarry and intermingle. And all of the great warnings throughout the five books of the law all started to play themselves out. Uh, and especially the idea that you will be tempted to worship their gods. And that is exactly what happened. But Samaria tried to have something called syncretism. It's where you try to combine God's plan and laws with the culture around you. It's, a, it's not a very uh, unusual idea. It, it's so often that Christianity befalls that fate, even in our time, where you want to combine Christianity with the self-help movement. You want to combine uh, Christianity with some of the kind of the, the, the Hindu uh, you know, spiritualism. There's, there's no end to the versions of syncretism that exist all throughout history and especially even at this time. Now, w- w- why is this interesting? Because when the Jews came back and, and they were taken out of the southern area there in Judea in 586 BC and they they were returned uh, later on after they were taken captive. When they returned, they then set about to rebuild the temple in 515 BC. And as they began to rebuild, because Nebuchadnezzar had wiped out the temple uh, between 600 and 586 BC. So the, the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin come back and they try to have a, and they are coming back with a purified faith. They come back with a zeal for the Lord. And it's actually pretty inspiring, actually. But when they do, it says in the Bible that Samaritans came and said, we would like to help you. But those that were in the southern area near Jerusalem said, no, you guys are such compromisers. And what has gone on among you is so corrosive that you're going to have no part in this. Well, it wasn't the most diplomatic thing to say, and perhaps they could have gone about that better, but they did actually cause a pretty serious divide from that point on where the Samaritans said, well, that's fine. We'll build our own temple. And, and they did in Mount Gerizim. They built their own temple. And they also then rewrote the Torah, the five books of the law, and came up with their own Torah. wasn't vastly different, but certain things had to be different. Like every reference to Jerusalem you had to do find and replace. Oh, you didn't have that then. Well, your scribes had to do some work and they had to do find and replace. Every time there was Jerusalem, you had to put in Gerizim. And then there was also another thing that was a little bit of a difficulty. And that was the Levites. Because there were no Levites 
up in Samaria. The Levites had gone into captivity with the southern tribes, and they were all now concentrated down in Judah and Jerusalem. So the idea of, 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 of priests and the priestly succession that would follow from that all had to be rewritten to describe the tribes up in the north that didn't include the Levites. So with those kind of innovations, they then set themselves up as the true Israel, as the southern tribes also were, of course, claiming to be the true Israel. And you could imagine the animosity that would have occurred when they were that far polarized by those events. It ran deep. And it may even be the case that it ran deeper than the Gentiles. Because if you're a southern Judah Jew and you look at the Gentiles, you just have a, well, they're dark and they're lost. But you look at the Samaritans, they know better. And they're corrupting the text. Look, here's the, here's the word of God from Moses. It doesn't say Gerizim, it says Jerusalem. It, 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 it doesn't say a Danite, it says a Levite. Where are they getting? You can imagine how incensed that you would get and how deep, deep the, the uh, animosity would run. So, for the new covenant to suddenly bless the Samaritans, that's a really big deal. That's crossing a serious threshold that had. It had never, never been forged before. So anyway, that's the, that's the background of, of what we're seeing here. Peter and John suddenly realized we better get up there because this is Samaria and we need to need to go and, and figure out what's going on. So Peter and John went to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We'll spend a little bit of time on a tangent on that. A purposeful tangent, not just one of my usual tangents. <laughs> then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Oy. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So, uh, as you saw already, uh, the, the title of the, ser of the sermon today is Start Spreading the News. And that is exactly what happens as a result of the persecution precipitated by the, the death of Stephen. Is they start spreading the news. And of course, this is one of the places where they arrive. Now, but they are... Leaving today, it says, on that day, on that day when the great persecution broke out, off they went. I'm leaving today. Now, this is astounding because if I'm there, if I'm part of this crowd, how tempted would you be to say, yo, how about this? Why don't we lay low for a bit? Let this craziness blow over. I mean, we didn't even know that the Jews would be so bold as to reenact executions. It's only the Romans who could do that. 
Obviously, the Jews have become unhinged at this point, and, and now they're killing, and now they've got this new guy, Saul, who is suddenly their champion of sp- supposed righteousness, that seems to be, I don't know, just tireless in his efforts to be able to stamp out any of us proclaiming the word, but, and, and, and he's everywhere. He's going about this everywhere. He's going to go up to Syria, to Damascus. He is stamping it out wherever he can. Others are emboldened by his efforts too as well. And and yet, I'm leaving today was not I'm leaving today cowardice. I'm leaving today to start spreading the news. Imagine if you were there. What is the power that allows them to do that? What is the resolve that gives them this astounding ability Well, their lives were changed. Their lives were changed by the love of Jesus and by the sanctifying work of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of these people, as were preached in Acts chapter 2, were baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. When that's really the case, you're not going to get held down because of persecution. You're not going to be stifled because of scattering. Instead, that scattering proves to just be an explosion of effective preaching of Jesus to a much wider swath of geography. I love that. I love that this is the characteristic of the early church. And that of the 10,000, all they go, that you could imagine each and every one, like Philip, bringing it to all of the corners of the places where they are about to go. And, and we'll see in a moment as they go to Caesarea, they go to Antioch, they make their way deep into Gentile territory. All of what Jesus predicted in Acts chapter 1 comes through. But here's what's interesting, is that Stephen's death is the very thing that helped make all of this possible. Jesus has said, power's going to come upon you, and when it does, preach my gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, and... Wait for it, wait for it. Samaria, yes, even there. And to the Gentiles, yes, even them. To the Jew hearing that, that has become a Christian, I'm sure they were quite content to hang in Jerusalem amongst their own, amongst the the, the normal folks that they perceived as normal and relatable, and just keep on expanding the gospel. And they did. I mean, amazingly, in in months that it went from 3,000 or 6,000, counting men, women, to to 5,000, 10,000, in such short order. How beautiful was the power of the gospel right there in the heart of the temple in Jerusalem and Judea as it spread. But I don't think it was going to go anywhere, honestly, until... God had to prompt it along through this persecution that occurs. And we're the beneficiaries of that. And, and it comes even to our, our uh, corners of the world because of the very activities of Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And even what precipitated that through, through the death of Stephen. Uh, but how about when you end up alone? When you end up in an odd place? When you're on vacation, let's say, do you turn off? Jesus is a convicting thought, isn't it? Or do you, do you need the infrastructure of organized religion in order to evangelize? Obviously you don't because we have no organized religion here. Just massively disorganized. (laughs) It's very easy to need a crutch rather than to just evangelize, to start spreading the news and, and even to have 
been under this, I'm leaving today. Even something as simple as, are you more likely to evangelize if you have a card inviting someone to a church event? I think we got to take some deep soul searching on that. Because that means that we're not overflowing with excitement and anticipation of who the next person that God is going to put in our path. Because God is the one who arranges all of this. Of who it is that he's going to put in our path to love. Who it is that he's going to put in our path to be able to share, as it says, the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus. And I want you to even hold this challenge. It'll come at the end as well. Is, are you excited to share the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus? As God puts people in your path. You are people that have been redeemed by the very blood of Christ. You've been made rich by Jesus who impoverished himself so that you can have all that you have. You have a community unlike any other that we could have ever imagined, that none of us could have ever constructed. We, we have a hope in what is to come our way that makes us bulletproof through the rest of the days that we walk on this earth. And we know Jesus. And we have been enriched by his words. We have all of this. And are we more likely just to say, hey, it's... In between Military Highway and Virginia Beach Boulevard, uh, off of Pickett Road. Do you know Sabre Road? Do you know the Chick-fil-A? That's, it's not open on Sunday. You, like, we're, we're more eager to be a concierge of directions than to just get into it. The good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus. That's what empowered them. Let me, let me encourage you, please, as, as we head out... To, to really think, you know, what is it that I can share that God has done for me in his kingdom? The good news of his kingdom in the name of Jesus. Uh, my second point and last point is I want to be a part of it. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. Guess who's a part of it here? Samaria. What the heck? Samaria. Putrid, stinking, half-breed, contaminated, corrosive, syncret. If I said that right, Samaria. And yet it happens seamlessly. They believe Peter and John run up. Oh, it's great news. Let's embrace them all that quickly. That's not the reality of our world today, sadly. Of the racial tensions in my life. And again, I can remember the riots of 68, 69 as a, as a young kid. I remember Newark, New Jersey, where we went to church, where, where some of the great riots occurred there. I, I remember even some, some of the places near where we lived, uh, where that was also continuing on. But I would have to say that in terms of just like a low voltage constancy of, of tension, this may be the worst I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And yet, I come in here and I experience none of that. If I happen to see any of your, your Facebook feeds or news or whatever it might be, there's none of that. Like on Facebook, where that is just like what everybody does. I think we need to appreciate what the Holy Spirit has done. And it can only be done by the Holy Spirit. You know, our, our church in Johannesburg, South Africa, in the late 80s, before apartheid, before the bringing down, before the release of Mandela, before any of that was the first integrated church in all of South Africa. A church that grew to thousands. And as those thousands come together, they did so colorblind. 
in the epicenter of racial tension, in the Samaria Judah of, of our modern day. The sadness of it is, though, that it happened about 50 years too late. Because 50 years before that church flourished in Johannesburg, Mahatma Gandhi went to South Africa and visited a variety of churches. And sadly, what the Holy Spirit had done among us, he didn't see because it hadn't been done yet. Instead, what he saw was bitter racial divide. And when he came back, the sadness of what he experienced in Christianity was, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians, is the famous quote by Gandhi. And while he desired to really pursue it by, by seeing the fruit of it, in the churches that he visited, he realized that it must have no potency whatsoever. Wow, right? But likewise, think of even what we've all kind of come out of as our church experiences. And a lot of us have, have come from, from different church backgrounds. And, and I can tell you that I came from a church of people that look just like me. And whereas there maybe a, a, a bit of diversity, well, yeah, but uh, I'm not, a, not afraid to, to label it as token because it was token at best there. And, and even those were of the same socioeconomic class. So, so even though they may have been of a different color, they were of the same exact socioeconomic class, went to the same kind of colleges, all that sort of stuff. So was it really diverse? Well, you know, I don't know. Not really. And, you know, it is the sadness of Martin Luther King's quote that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Why should our elementary schools and recreation teams be more integrated than the churches across Hampton Roads? That's a, a, an awful, awful indictment of what it is to claim to be building something in the name of Jesus. And one of the hallmarks of the church that is unmistakable is the crossing of racial and ethnic and socioeconomic lines. And never, ever, ever, throughout all of the pages of the New Testament, ever giving in to in any way segregating the church. Never happened. Well, why don't we have the, 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 the Gentile church over here, the Samaritan church over here, and the Jew church over here. Jewish church over here. Uh, why, why, don't we, why, don't we, why don't we do it that way? But today, for whatever reason... That has happened. And the reason is not a good one. Is it justified in the eyes of those who do it? Yes, it is. Because in our flesh, we have an inexhaustible capacity to justify our transgressions before the Lord. But I, I think we need to just step back and just praise God that we get to live in a community without any of those boundaries. And, and sure, well, you know, in our church, you might say... Yeah, there, there are some people of a, of a different ethnicity. Have you had them over to your house for dinner? Are, are you being discipled by, by someone that is of a, of a different ethnicity? No, that's not going on. It's not. It's not. It is here. I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to like puff ourselves up. I'm trying to get us to stop and appreciate the Holy Spirit has done something pretty crazy in our day to be able to fashion this. We couldn't have done it. We would have failed miserably. It would have been a joke. Facade. At best, but we've got this. Amen. Our kids grow up not, not knowing, and, and within a generation, my, my goodness, everybody's going to be beige anyway. As, as we have, I mean, it's like every marriage is an interracial marriage now. Who's going to know what is what? I think we're going to be an interesting social experiment as the, as the generations go on. Praise God. Praise God. And I'm going to leave that there. But I want to take a tangent now 
on this. I want to be a part of it. Because, yes, the Samaritans wanted to be a part of it, and they were. The Jews wanted them to be a part of it, and they were. James, uh, Peter and John wanted them to be a part of it. Philip did, and they were. Praise God. But Simon, it also seems, wanted to be a part of it in a special way. Right? As, as he looks and he, and he sees, when Simon saw, verse 18, that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't, he didn't just want the gifts of the Holy Spirit that, that were given to him. He didn't even want the attesting miraculous uh, confirmation in his life of the Holy Spirit that was going on. He had all of that because the apostles came and laid their hands on all of them and that really did, did go down. He didn't just want the golden egg. He wanted to be able to lay the golden egg again and again. He wanted... <laughs> Tony, Tony's distracting me right now. <laughs> he didn't just want a miraculous experience in the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be able to wield it and direct it according to his own will. Ultimately, Peter has to say to him, I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. What kind of sin leaves you bitter? I think there are two particular things that leave me bitter that I know of entitlement and pride. And we already know that's what that was the prevailing sin in Simon's life. If you have to boast about being someone great, it's a pretty good indicator that arrogance and pride might actually be attending to your life. And, and so again, may, maybe he really did believe and was baptized, but he's in a really rough spot at the moment right here of, of, of this bitterness, this bitterness that was attending to him. And, you know, I, I love um, one of my favorite quotes from bitterness uh, is from the TV show Cheers when Woody is talking to Sam and he's just been done wrong by a girl and he's just having an awful moment as he's tending bar and Sam asks him, are you uh, are you bitter? Are you bitter, Woody? Is that what's going on? And Woody says, I'm not bitter, Sam. I'm just consumed by annoying hate that's eating away at my gut until I can taste the bile in my mouth. <laughs> what a beautiful definition of bitterness. Annoying hate eating away at my gut until I can taste the bitterness in my mouth. That's where we end up when we allow entitlement to come back into our life. Or, or pride to come back into our life. And he wanted that in his position in the church. He wanted that in his standing among the others. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really rough and difficult place to, to be able to end up. But, uh, but, uh, but there's something else here in chapter 8 that is interesting. And it's that Peter and John recognize. And I'll, I'll, I'll read this. Um, starting in verse uh, 15. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers... That, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And I have this quoted in the ESV. I'm going to read it from the NIV here. But the ESV is a bit more literal. Uh, that they might receive the Holy Spirit uh, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Or more literally, had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, in the original language, simply is not in any way... A, um, a diminutive idea or a lowering of, of magnitude idea. 
It is a kind of a clarifying simplicity of the activity that had gone on there. Because to be, to be baptized in the name of Jesus is kind of a big deal. When Peter explains it in Acts 2.38, he says, Every one of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. To be baptized in the name of the Jesus is to be baptized of water and spirit. It's not just simply a water activity. If it were, then it's not even, not even something worth to consider. If it's not to be born of water and spirit. Jesus himself says that you're born of water and spirit. But, but, but just for a moment here, I want to take a consideration of the work of the Holy Spirit where he falls upon someone versus the indwelling receipt of the Holy Spirit when you're born of water and spirit. Or as uh, Paul said earlier in Titus 3.5, uh, that, that through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here, here is what, what is in view here, that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Now, something that helps us to understand the really two dramatic different ministries of the Holy Spirit that go on in the book of Acts and go on between the Old Testament and the New. That in the Old Testament, there's a lot of amazing activity of the Holy Spirit. But that activity is basically to stamp a, an event as being an affirmation or a confirmation of God's work in these matters. So if you, if you think of perhaps, you know, Samson, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he's able to do some great deed at the very moment. It is using someone or using someone to accomplish something or using someone to confirm something by God. And that's always been a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was all throughout the Old Testament and in the New. But Jesus says something interesting in John 7. He says uh, there in John 7 verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit. So in other words, the spirit will be like rivers of, of water flowing within you. Amen. Whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the spirit had not been given. Uh, but what about all the people in the Old Testament that have the spirit upon them? Was that not given? Not in this way, apparently. And that is the big deal of the New Testament, is that through the blood of Christ, we have access to a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Amen. Up to that point in time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when will the Spirit be given in this way? This permanent flowing of living water from within us? When will it be given in that way? When the Son of Man, when Jesus is glorified. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit is then given in that way. Uh, Jesus, even in, in describing um, the, the baptism that would be in his name, says that, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. This is a big part of the New Testament, is this, this baptism of water and spirit. Titus 3.5 Likewise says, by the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, I've already just read to you. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. 
And what does this gift of the Holy Spirit do in the New Testament? Plenty of things, but let me read just a couple of them. I'm going to read from Ephesians, and I'm going to read from um, the, the book of Romans. Now, in Ephesians, it, it, it tells us this uh, amazing work of the Holy Spirit. Here it says, whoop, in verse uh, 13, And you also were included in Christ. That's a big deal. When you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, when you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What's the big deal about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? It is a a seal and a deposit guaranteeing your place in Christ when he comes. That's massive. That's wonderful. Uh, Later on, it also says in verse 18 that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in holy people and his incomparably great power. And and he'll refer to this as the power of the Holy Spirit in a moment. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That power, that marking, that sealing is all attributes of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Also look over here. In Romans chapter 8, if you um, are are looking along with me, I'm going to read from Romans 8, starting in verse 9. And there the Bible says, You, however, are not of the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's a really big deal. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Wow. So no fear of death. Bring it on. I'm not looking for it, but my goodness, if it comes, there's nothing but glory that comes as a result of that. A little later on, in verse 15 of that same chapter, it also says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Wow. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Just as God said to Jesus, you are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. So he looks at you reborn of the spirit, not of anything that you've done, but nonetheless marked, sealed, filled, indwelt, flowing within you as God regards you as Jesus, your brother regards you as God looks at you. He says, this is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Amen. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, there was something different. 
of the Spirit coming upon people. For example, in Judges 15, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. So, again, Holy Spirit comes upon him. There's nothing about salvation. There's nothing about marking or sealing or including in Christ in this. It's just an outward manifestation to make a point. God is making a point when the Spirit falls upon someone. But here's the difficult part. In the Old Testament, when the Spirit falls upon someone, they are also sometimes referred to as being filled with the Spirit. And you're like, well, but is that the indwelling? It must not be because Jesus tells us in John 7 that this won't happen until he is glorified. And that in that way, the Spirit has not yet been given. Just because the phrase sounds like it, it doesn't mean that it is. We've got to go by Jesus' description rather than our logical use of, of, uh, of English words to try to figure this part out. That Jesus says, this is going to be a new thing in the new covenant, a new thing when I'm glorified that will come your way. It won't be just like the, the giving of the Spirit up until this point. Up until this point, the Spirit came to make a point. And that point wasn't that you're saved. The point was, God is making a statement among you. Uh, in, for example, in, in 1 Chronicles 12, the Spirit came on Amasai, chief of the 30, and he said, We're yours, David. We're with you, son of Jesse. Success, success to you. Success to those who help you. For God will help you. And so, God was making a point uh, through that. It's interesting that David himself who, who was filled with the Spirit on various occasions, says in Psalm 51, verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, here's a very interesting one. In 1 Samuel 19, Saul is breathing murderous threats against David. Uh, this is Old Testament Saul that is, that is bringing threats against David. He is filled with entitlement, pride, and is filled with bitterness and gall because David is getting all the attention. And in an ungodly manner, of all ungodly manners, he wants to stamp out David. And on a crusade to kill him, he is disrupted along the way. And this is what the Bible says. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. Does this mean that he's now marked and sealed for redemption by the Holy Spirit? It does not. Does this mean that the Holy Spirit is now permanently dwelling within him to empower him? It does not. It simply means that the Holy Spirit is making a statement or trying to actually accomplish a purpose by disrupting him from killing David at this moment. But the Spirit of God came even on him and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. That is why the people say, is Saul even among the prophets. Because it's such a surprising thing that that could be the case. Again, please, if you can get this straight, it makes such a massive difference in appreciating the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the work of the Holy Spirit, if He comes upon you and you do something demonstrative to be able to prove a point for God, Amen! But that is of no value to your soul. The value to your soul is when you are reborn of the Holy Spirit. When you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. When you're marked by the Holy Spirit. That's the thing for which we should all strive. Not for the, the, the dog and pony show that, that some might perceive to be some sort of a, a, you know, a momentous 
experience of the Holy Spirit. If that happens, praise God that he's making a point in some way or another. But do not in some weird way flip it around and see that that's of greater value. Now, I say this because Jesus says that there's these big events in the book of Acts that are going to come. He says it in verse 8. That you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and among the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting is when the Jews are included in the covenant, they are baptized and they're born of water and spirit. But guess what else happens? The Holy Spirit comes down upon them and proves a big point. In Samaria, they are baptized into the name of Jesus. They're born of water and spirit. They are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit dwells within them. But guess what else happens to make the point that Samaritans are God's people too? Is the Holy Spirit falls upon them, but not until the apostles come to make sure that that works out. And then later, when Cornelius, the first Gentile, comes into the faith, that's another big barrier to cross. And guess what happens there? He's baptized, and he is born of water and spirit, and the spirit dwells within him. But guess what else happens in that instance? The Holy Spirit falls upon them so that God can give his stamp that I approve. I approve. Go ahead and bring the Gentiles into the covenant. Now, again, because in those three instances that are already the big plan of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it it happens in in Judea, in Samaria, and among the Gentiles as well. So, So keep that in mind as you go about. And don't ever, ever... Be, be insecure that, well, but I'm not kind of doing the demonstrably miraculous stuff of the Holy Spirit. Do I have the Holy Spirit? Yes, you do. You have a spirit that has given you no longer a slavery to sin, but one now that embraces righteousness. You have a spirit that sanctifies you. You have a spirit that, that causes you to be absolutely different from the world. There are so many that claim the Holy Spirit in outward demonstrable ways, but in their bedrooms, the nasty is going on. Where's the power in that? Where's the wonder in that? My goodness, praise God that you have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, that constantly is bringing you into holiness, into communion, into a glory, into a wonder of righteousness itself. And so, he wanted to be a part of it. He missed on what it really meant to be a part of it. We're a part of it here. We are a part of it here because of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that has brought us together. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 11 and 12 says that we were baptized by one spirit into one body. We didn't form this integrated grouping of people. The Holy Spirit did. Let's always be in awe of that, that we get to be a part of it courtesy of the Holy Spirit. And, and as a final charge, I really want us to take this to heart. And that's why I even gave us a little bit of a deadline here. Because it's easy. To, oh, yeah, yeah, someday I'll get around to this. But no, I really want you, before midweek, share the good news. Not directions. Not just an invitation. Share the good news with someone who looks very different from you. And then share at midweek how God used you. When we come back Tuesday night, raise your hand. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm to call on people who have, who have reached out to someone because of the prompting of the Holy Spirit, because of the example of Scripture, because this is the very will and the plan of God, uh, and to see what it was that happened when, God, when you aligned yourself with the very work of God, that you started sharing the news, you're leaving today, we are in a moment, to West Virginia, 
and that you want to be a part of it. Share this. Share this with someone and come back and tell us what God has done among you.